G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And we have certainly been doing that over the last four weeks as we did a bit of a recap over your questions that have been sent in over the past five seasons and over 100 episodes of the show. We've had some awesome questions sent in, which has resulted in a lot of great content for our listeners. So thank you to everybody who contributed those questions. But you must be sick of that by now, so I thought we'd bring you something different. You've probably noticed the absence of my dear friend and co-host, Chris Bather. I did promise he'd be back by now. Never fear, he's going to be back with us next week. But I am not alone by any means today. Today, I've got a special treat for our audience, and I'm not going to lie, it's a bit of a treat for me too, because we have a special guest on the show today, and I'm really excited about it. So, without any further ado, it is my great pleasure to introduce on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, Dr. Matthew Halstead. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's an honor to be here. It was a long time in the making to uh, coordinate this, but I'm, I'm glad we're here now and, and really great timing given the subject matter that we've been going through on the show here in Genesis 6. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, your uh, family and that sort of thing and uh, where you're from. Yeah, um, so I uh, I work for Eternity Bible College and I, I, uh, I'm a professor most of my job is administrative, though, uh, at the college, and we, um, everybody on staff, pretty much does multiple things. You know, we we try to run a lean budget, and and um, and uh, so that we can offer education that is accessible to people and our students. So we, um, yeah, we have uh, we have we're a pretty busy busy gang <laughs> um, on that front. But uh, yeah, so I'm married. I've been married 17 years. We have four kiddos. And I live uh, in the U.S., uh, pretty much right in the middle. So if you find a, a, a map and you put your finger somewhere around the middle, you're going to be close to me. So I live in Oklahoma, uh, in Oklahoma City. So the central part of America, the central part of Oklahoma, right in the middle. And um, yeah, I've, I've pretty much lived here with the exception of a few years, um, a few stints in a few other states or a couple other states. Um, I've lived here all my life pretty much. So uh, did, I, uh, lived for a little bit in Florida. I lived, uh, for a few years in Texas, but for the most part, I've been here, um, uh, for about the four decades I've been walking this green earth. So, um, anyway, yeah, it's, uh, that, that's us. Um, well, I was just going to say, uh, if you're in Oklahoma, that puts you pretty close to some good friends of mine in our podcasting network. So the, uh, Raven Creek social club have, uh, few friends uh probably not too far from you oh very good so that's that's, cool. That, that's cool that's great awesome yeah um so yeah i understand you got a, a podcast yourself of course which uh which i've been following for a while uh, the bible unmuted but i first came across you on the naked bible podcast of course and I, i'd say that a fair chunk of this audience uh, would be familiar with you from there so mm -hmm. uh i mean yeah, I, I don't think that needs any introduction, but uh, tell us a bit about your show. Yeah, um, so I had been thinking about doing a podcast for quite a while, and uh, some other people kind of encouraged me to do it, and I kind of put it off just for time's sake and, you know, that kind of thing. And so finally, I'm like, ah, we just need to do this. And so so I just leaped in, jumped in, and um, uh, wanted to do something on biblical studies 
it's a little bit more broad than that, I think, because we do biblical studies, but I try to dabble into theology. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we dabbled a little bit into philosophy on the nature of free will and that kind of thing. And I was, I was hoping um, to to do a little bit more on that. Uh, and I'm sure I'm sure we will in the future. But by by and large, it's a biblical studies podcast. And the idea behind the name, the Bible Unmuted, is that I wanted to convey sort of a passion of mine is just is is that namely we don't want to mute the biblical text like even if it's weird if even if it's strange even if it kind of takes us aback a little bit um we don't we don't want to mute it we want to let it speak and so we want to take the bible and unmute it and just encounter it for whatever it is um as best as we can we're all biased to some degree right um but 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 that doesn't mean we can't give this the, the scripture um what one scholar calls a fair reading, right? I think we can give it a fair reading. And, but we have to keep in mind our own biases, our own prejudgments, our own assumptions, so that it won't be muted, that, it, that we can hear the scripture for all that it's worth. And so that's sort of my approach to these sorts of things. And um, the podcast mostly is long form sort of study. Right now we're going through Romans, but I also do a lot of interviews and I'm hoping to do more short form sort of things. Um, you know, five, 10 minute segments and stuff. So in the future, my, my hope uh, in the future, I haven't really shared this, but um, yeah, this is, this is news to everybody. I haven't shared it. So I'll just share it here on, on, the, on your podcast. But my hope is to do in the future, maybe years from now, <laughs> I don't know, but to do something really long in the, in, in the sense of like maybe some sort of documentary, audio documentary or something, you know, on a topic that has something to do with the Bible. And so I was actually thinking about that this morning. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see what the future holds, but I've got a lot of ideas. Uh, we'll see which ones stick. Yeah, cool. No, that's really good. Yeah, I have been enjoying the show, and uh, yeah, in particular, some of the more recent content's been really great. That that one on uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah, the last uh, one. Yeah. Yeah, that was amazing to me because yeah, it gave me some perspective uh, that that I hadn't considered before. So I, I found that valuable. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Paul Thigpen, um, he was, we just interviewed him and he is a wonderful person, a, a dear friend. And, um, he, he has written that, that book, um, extraterrestrial intelligence in the Catholic faith. Are we alone with God and the angels? You know, it's such a neat title, but it's, uh, it's also just a really good book in terms of, engaging church history to help us answer a modern question. So it's, it's, it was a fascinating mm. discussion. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to have to pick that book up myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of books, you've written uh, some, some work yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, uh, last year published a book on Romans, Paul's use of scripture in the old, uh, in the old Testament, uh, as he cites them in, in the book of Romans. And um, so that's been fun. That was a great project. It was a long project and um, it's an academic book. So it's, it's one of those, you know, that, you know, I, when I go back, I, I have to go back and reread stuff. I'm like, as I'm thinking about topics, I'm like, oh, what did I, what did I say about that? I need to go back and I have to reread stuff. Um, so it's pretty dense in that regard. And it's, you know, half of it's uh, philosophical hermeneutics. So the first part is philosophy. The second part is essentially exegesis. And, um, and so I'm trying to, trying to straddle that fence as best as possible. Uh, hopefully I've done a good job in that regard, but um, it's, it was definitely an interdisciplinary approach to some questions some in biblical studies. But yeah, so I did that and I've got another book coming out uh, in February, February 7th. 
Uh, it's it's available for pre-order, but it's not been sh- it won't ship until the seventh of February. Um, but it's called um, the end of the world as you know it. Uh, what the Bible really says about the end times and why it's good news. It's not an academic book. It's more of a popular level book that seeks to bring um, academic insights into a popular level questions. Yeah, it was a fun book to write. The genesis of that whole project was interesting in its own right. And so long story short, um, you know, this is multi years in in the process even. um, And uh, that's going to be done uh, officially February 7th. So we're looking forward to that. And um, yeah, 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 I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's it, I just tackle seven uh, big questions about the end times. So questions about the tribulation. Is there going to be a future tribulation and that sort of thing? Um, you know, who or what is the Antichrist? What is the mark of the beast? You know, are we living in the end times? Just basic questions like that. Um, will there be a rapture in, in the in, in the states? You know, one big popular view is that there's going to be a rapture followed by a seven year tribulation followed by a, 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 the coming of Jesus and millennial reign and that kind of thing. So I, you know, I, I, I tackled the rapture question cause it's, it's a big question. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, that tradition is quite big in Australia too. We by and large, I think uh, outside of the, the Catholic tradition, I would say most people fall into that category of, yeah, something along the lines of uh, like your, your Baptist or, you know, Mm-hmm. fundamental uh evangelical so uh yeah there'd, there'd be a lot of people familiar with that tradition uh here as well okay cool cool yeah yeah and that, that book is, seek, is seeking to kind of dialogue with that tradition and it really it, it's written as i said every, well it's written as every chapter is its own question and we're kind of taking a journey together me and the reader and let's just explore what the bible says let's you know not unmute. I mean, let's unmute the Bible, right? Let's let's go ahead and let the Bible speak, and let's keep our own assumptions in check. All the things that we've been taught, and I just tell the reader, like you, you can pick those assumptions back up if if you need to, but let's just for the sake of a journey together, let's just set them aside, and let's encounter Scripture uh, afresh, and um, let it speak to us. And then, um, if our assumptions are um, critiqued, then we'll get new assumptions. If our assumptions are confirmed, then that's great too. But either way, we've been on a journey together and we've hopefully learned something in the process. So that's the approach of the book. Yeah. yeah. That, well, that's that's the approach that I see coming through in all of your work that I've encountered. I, I really find it fresh because uh, I don't see a, a lot of that elsewhere. You know, people are prepared to try different perspectives and, and see what sticks. Mm-hmm rather than sort of approaching with, well, this is my agenda and I'm looking to prove it. (laughs) Yeah. So I I really appreciate that. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Now we'll come back and mention this again later, but uh, just for those who might be uh, furiously Googling and stuff, do you have a website and that sort of thing that you can share with people? Yeah. um, It's just, uh, it's just my name, MatthewHalstead.com. And, um, yeah, I, I have a blog and um, you can find the podcast there and, um, you know, you can, uh, there's a podcast page and all that. So people can look that up and, and the podcast is available and uh, th- I think on all the platforms, Google, Apple, Spotify. And, um, but yeah, yeah, there's a contact form. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I have been good about responding to folks, but I am, my, my email is 
inbox is so overloaded that unfortunately I may not be able to always respond. Uh, it's it's kind of funny because I've been telling folks, hey, yeah, write, write in, tell, you know, let's talk. And But I, I, I'm i having to uh, come to terms with my own finitude. I'm not always able to extend my 24-hour day into 36 hours as much as I want to. Trust me, I really want to. Folks can find out about me there and at the, at the website. All right. Well, uh, I suppose we, we need to get into the the subject matter and, and this this was interesting because uh, when we started dialoguing back and forth trying to get this to work initially it was uh, where were we I think about July and at that time in the podcast we were talking about Enoch we were in the middle of Genesis 5 and uh, sort of Coming and hiring about whether we could get something together in time for that. But then, as it turns out, we're now in Genesis 6, which is a really opportune time to pick up the, the story of the man who is spoken of in those early verses of Genesis 6 and who we've been following on the podcast uh, from the very beginning. And the, the story of the man unfolds uh, gradually through uh, Genesis 2 and 3. And we get to only, the, I think, the end of Genesis 4, we finally get his name as Adam. And then we have this genealogy in Genesis 5. But uh, on the whole, the man is... Uh, a, a very unusual way to, to talk about a character in a story. And I think it warrants our consideration. Uh, back in season three of the show, I started introducing listeners to the idea of the man as an archetype. And we came to know the biblical Adam, the genealogical Adam, as a kind of reference point, as a sort of, marker that we should pay attention to his story and see how it applies to not only ourselves but people in general mm-hmm. so uh and and this isn't a new perspective by any means uh i think about the literature from Qumran, the community rule uh 1qs 11 verses 21 to 22 says this, what shall one born of woman be accounted before thee? Needed from the dust, his abode is the nourishment of worms. He is but a shape, but moulded clay and inclines toward dust. And uh, that just makes me think of the the transient nature of humanity and how we have these humble origins and Mm -hmm. uh, a humble uh, destiny, naturally speaking. And uh, I've spoken on the on the show about the idea of the dust, uh, which comes up again and again in Scripture as a figure of speech to talk about multitudes and vast mm-hmm. quantities, where uh, you have uh, the descendants of Abraham being spoken of as the as numerous as the dust of the earth, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the idea that uh, of of a large population. You know, you, you can pick a speck of dust and it's indistinct from any other speck of dust, but yet God chooses this one. 
and and makes him the preeminent, the, the first, right? So, uh, what, what do you think it is that uh, that makes the man so special in these early chapters of Genesis? You know, what, what does he mm-hmm. what does he do? How does he work in in the story? That's a great question. Um, so, as you were talking, I was just looking up Psalm 103. Um, yeah, 103, verse 14. For he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. And that's a really important passage because it occurs um, outside of Genesis. And it's a reference to uh, humanity, uh, you know, in general, right? I mean, that's something that is applied to all of us. It can be. Um, and yet none of us are actually made of dust. I mean, I think embryology is a pretty exact science these days. We know how it all works, right? And so yep. as far as I know, we're not made um, from mud, from dust. We are made from uh, an egg and sperm and then we grow and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And yet I still believe that this is true. And it's also, it's, it would also be a mistake to think that the psalmist here doesn't know where babies come from. Like as if he's just this, yeah. you know, dumb Neanderthal, no offense to Neanderthals. I don't know how their intelligence level, but, uh, but you know, he knows where babies come from. Ancient Jews knew where ba- ancient peoples knew where babies come from. We have this idea that as modern man living in the 21st century, that, you know, those people of past eras were just so stupid, you know, and we have figured it out. And I actually think in many cases, while we have advanced in our technology and insight and knowledge, um, it's, it's also the opposite that I think we've probably digressed and we've forgotten things that the ancients knew better than us. And I think here, I think it's just important, important to point out that he's not saying or suggesting that uh, people in his era, you know, in the psalmist's era, that they were made from the mud, okay, or the dust or whatever. He's making a, a statement about, uh, he's making an existential statement um, about, um, he's not commenting on physics, he's commenting on um, a theology and uh, our own mortality. And he's just basically saying that life is brief, fragile, uh, you know, and, and, we need to keep that in mind in our relationship with each other, with God, um, and so forth. And so, you know, this language of man being dust, or hum- I'll just say humanity, a humanity being dust. Um, these are theological statements. And I think a strong case could be made that in Genesis, to answer your question, in Genesis, those are still theological statements. They're not statements about physics or chemistry, okay? They're just, um, they're, they're statements about the fragility of life. Um, life is preciously fragile. And, um, you know, uh, and I think that's sort of the idea to, to point out our own mortality, our own finitude. I think there's what we might call um, an epistemological element here, too, in the sense that epistemology, you know, meaning uh, the study of knowledge and the study of man's limits of knowledge and so forth, what we can know and what we cannot know. So this idea of us being dust is just, it's, it's one of saying, look, we are so limited in just about every way possible. You know, um, we are finite creatures. We are not creators. We are creatures um, in that sense. And so um, going back to your original question about Genesis, I think um, we need to keep in mind this idea of, of Adam being dust, that Adam represents humanity in that vein too. Like he is an archetypal, archetypal character who um, gives us a portrait of what it means to be human. And he is fragile. Um, and, uh, and when I say he, I mean 
I mean, um, you know, we could get into debates about the historical Adam, but I mean that in a very broad sense, like he meaning we. Um, and so, uh, you know, of course, lots more can be said about that. Lots of work has been done on those questions and where, how do you bifurcate between historical Adam or, um, you know, whatever. Um, we could get into those debates. Um, but one, one thing that I find extremely interesting um, as this kind of a second part to answer your question, I think you asked, what do I think about Adam and how do we approach Adam or whatnot? Well, I think we should approach it Jewishly. I think we'd, we should approach it from the perspective of Torah and the perspective of Jew, the Jewish story. So if anybody who knows me and knows my work, I follow um, N.T. Wright's idea of taking a storied approach to our, our, our study of scripture. And if you want a, a, just a resource on this, I would highly recommend his 1992 book, The New Testament and the People of God, which is the first volume in his very long but wonderful series on what he calls Christian origins and the question of God. He kicks off that project with volume one, and he talks about his hermeneutic approach. And he thinks that we should approach it from a storied motif, that there's a story weave through the pages, that the New Testament writers uh, took all the Old Testament data and and found in them a story in which um, it could, um, you know, come in into their own lives and answer their own questions and whatnot. Anyway, go, go and read that. It's, it's a great book. Um, and so anyway, I've kind of adopted that myself in how I think about the Old Testament. And, and so, you know, how would a Jew have read the Adam story? Uh, N.T. Wright talks about this too. I think it was in some lecture. I can't remember. But basically what he says is, you know, if you're a Jew living um, uh, in Second Temple period, you know, which was uh, the era of the earliest Christians and prior to them, <clears throat> you know, if, you, if, you, if they were to read the story of Adam, they would probably look at it and say, you know, as N.T. Wright says, my goodness, that's, that's our story. You know, we are given, uh, we, are, we are created or elected. Sometimes election language can be equated with creation language. We see this in Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. And so, you know, here we are, we are elected. We are given a land, a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, this place of idealism, of safety, comfort, the presence of God even. And we sin and we get exiled. Is that the story of Adam or is that the story of Israel? Yes. <laughs> and so, so now here's the other thing. Israel, as if you follow Paul's line of thinking in Romans, Paul is a very good Jew who was born a Jew, who in my opinion and in my idea, he died a Jew. He, his self-understanding was, I am a Jew from the day he died, from the day he was born to the day he died. And I think, you know, he, he, he's showing in Romans that we are all, in, are, all are under sin. And, um, and so, uh, so, it, so the Israel story follows the human story. And um, Israel has a special role to play in saving the, the nations, the world. Um, you know, they have, they've, by God's grace, have been elected to bring salvation to the world. Um, and Paul works all that out in Romans as well. And in Galatians too, as well, and Ephesians and all these places. Um, but yeah, I think we should read it as that, that story uh, of, of, of the story of Israel, I think. It is the story of humanity, of, of Gentiles too. But there's also a, a part of me that definitely wants to read it as a Jewish story too, told as an allegory of sorts. You know, um, there's it's a, that's the beauty of of Genesis one through eleven. Really, is that it gives us uh, a symbolic language um, in which we can speak about 
the human reality and the Jewish story together and how those relate and intermingle and so forth. Yeah, that's great. That's yeah. I'm inclined to agree with, uh, with everything you said. I, I think it's, it's a masterful work of storytelling and yeah, just to see that such a story can be told in a way that it penetrates right to your own heart, you know, um, and, and that's that's what I love actually about the the man being uh, sort of chosen and and formed from the dust. Uh, you know, it's it's a reminder that we're not in ourselves anything special. You know, we're special because God chose us. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I I love that because it's the great equalizer. You know, we're all, all of us humans. Uh, we're the same down here. <laughs> yep, we are exactly. Uh, and, yeah, you know, and we we got to uh, respect our fellow man accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that's a very yeah. good thought. That's a really good thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, also, I think it's interesting uh, as we read through the Hebrew Bible, we don't find uh, much reference to, to Adam in connection with ideas like sin mm-hmm. and and death in association. Uh, as you mentioned, Psalm 103 gives us that form from dust language, which, you know, potentially that comes from Genesis 2, but then it's also a common uh, concept throughout the ancient Near East. So, uh, you know, not necessarily uh, drawing from Genesis. But the idea of connecting sin and death uh, through Adam, that's that's something we don't see in the Old Testament outside of the Genesis story. Um, and as I've said on the show in the past, I think that's a pretty good argument for a late composition of the text. But now that we get into the New Testament, it seems that people did have this idea that Adam and Eve somehow had some kind of connection to the origin of sin and evil and even death in the world. Where do you think they're getting those ideas from? That's a, man, that's a really good question. So, so yeah, Paul's not the only one to really connect those dots. I mean, you could look at other Second Temple literature, uh, Fourth Ezra, you know, um, there's some passages. Uh, I was reading uh, through some of that the other day and um, yesterday even. And it's interesting, you know, I think something like Fourth Ezra deserves multiple readings, you know, uh, if anybody wants to yeah. dive into it. Because, I mean, I've read it before, but when I was going back through it yesterday, you know, you just notice all kinds of fun things and perhaps um you you've missed or whatever but anyway yeah so your fourth ezra second baruch is another one that that's there's some passages there not you know perhaps not as many um, um, but there's some key ones i think that are important um romans 5 you know paul talks this is a famous passage where paul seems to connect uh the original sin with um the the, the current state of why why we are what we are today um and and in it, well, in the first century as well as in the 21st. Yeah, I just encourage people to go read uh, Romans 5 uh, as well, but also read it in conjunction with 4th Ezra. Because even in 4th Ezra, like th- like these Adam passages are just mentioned in passing and their responses to prayers. You you get this sense that there's a struggle to understand the problem of evil, you know, in, in that sense. And so there's some parallels there. Um, but to answer your question directly, I think, yeah, I think that, you know, given... Given passages like Psalm 103, that there's there is early there are connections well before the Second Temple period that seem to connect um, the story of Adam 
with a story of us. And I think Psalm 103 is a great example of that, that we are, we are but dust um, and that somehow we are, we are repeating um, the story of Adam each and every day we live. You also get the, it's important to also draw uh, awareness to other passages in scripture where the creation motif is alluded to. And I'm thinking of, I can't think of where it's at at the moment, but in Jeremiah, where the chaotic state of pre uh, of creation is kind of uh, seen as, as reoccurring uh, in the exile. That's and that right. Kind of yeah. Yeah. The tohu vabo yeah, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of mirrors that whole thing, doesn't it? It yeah, it does. shows an awareness of that story. It, it exactly does. And um, so there's awareness of that story there. So there's connections in the story of Israel with those primeval stories that they were, t- that they were talking about it with Adam and Eve. Um, I'm trying to think of another example. Um, you, you know, you might, you might come back to Ezekiel 37, uh, where the Valley of Dry Bones, this is definitely uh, a retelling of the creation story in the story of Israel itself. And so there's an illusion, strong one back to the creation story and, and whatnot. And, you know, man has been relegated to the dust, but God's going to raise it back up. Um, and, and this is Israel as a whole. Uh, this is a story of Israel in Ezekiel 37. You, you know, you get a little bit in Daniel 12 uh, with resurrection language as well. But I, I tend to think that over time there was this just realization um, among Jews that there's a problem, that we were called to be a blessing to the nations. We were called to have our promised land and the promised land would be protected, especially the temple where God's spirit dwells. But you have this sense in which that the spirit leaves the temple, like God's glory leaves the temple. And I think the image there is that God is withdrawing his um, breath of life, uh, his spirit, uh, uh, you know, the Ruach, and uh, he's withdrawing yeah. uh, from the life of Israel. And Israel becomes a valley of dry bones that needs to be resurrected. And so if Israel is seeing itself in this predicament, you know, they are seeing that we are strangely, mysteriously living in continuity with the story that we've told ourselves about Adam. And moreover, there's no question for ancient Jews that the nations have gone crazy, right? That they are corrupt. But the realization is, my goodness, we have a problem. You know, this is, you know, we are in exile. And by the time you come to the early Christian movement, you know, these questions are being volleyed back and forth among the various Jewish factions. You have the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Zealots. Um, and they're all answering that question, that exile question, the problem of sin question. They're answering it different ways. The Zealots want to launch military campaigns. You know, they want to strike while the, the, the sword is still hot. And they, you know, the Pharisees want to maintain strict Torah observance so that es- their eschatological hopes will be realized. Um, the Essenes, uh, from what we know about them, they just are like, well, not only is the world corrupt, but the Jewish nation is corrupt, so we're leaving. We're going to embody the new covenant in our own community um, out in the desert. And, um, and so everybody's answering these questions much differently in their own ways, and they're fighting amongst themselves. And the early Christian movement is itself an ancient or a, a second temple Jewish movement where the early Christians are saying, well, here's our answer to the question. Israel has been resurrected. Israel is resurrected in the story of Je- in, in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and we are called to go forth among the nations all across the world, baptizing him in, uh, them in, the, in that name, um, because um, this is the way Israel's story continues and is fulfilled. 
And so if Israel has been resurrected, well, let's just back, if, if, if there was hope that Israel would be resurrected in Ezekiel 37 as almost you know, the reversal of the plight of Adam, then, then that makes sense why the early Christians saw Jesus as, um, well, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Matthew chapter one, verse through, um, chapter one through chapter seven, he's presenting Jesus as the new Israel. He's baptized in the Jordan. He flees Egypt as a child. He, um, he's tempted for forty days in the wilderness with the same temptations that ancient Israel. He's reenacting the story of Israel, and he said, and, and God looks up him and says, "This is my son in whom I'm well pleased." In Exodus chapter four twenty three, God calls Israel his son, but he's seldom pleased with Israel as, as his son. But Jesus is pleasing to the Father, and he is, you know, marked out as the true Israelite. Well, if this true Israelite suffers and dies, he's stuck in a tomb, but he doesn't stay there and he's resurrected. This fulfills Ezekiel's 30, 37's hope that Israel will be resurrected. And that in turn re- reveals that the man, the dust, is not going to stay dust, but is now a life-giving spirit. And the early Christians say, this is Israel restored. Israel is restored in Jesus, and he's restored in the Jesus people. That's why Paul can reflect on the Adam story in the way that he does. Romans 5, Jesus is the second Adam. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the second Adam. So yeah. I don't know if yeah. that answers so, your question, uh, but that is the story that is oh, being told. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then so that, that helps us to get a bit of perspective on why the, the Jews are writing the second temple period. To, to try and put us in Adam's shoes, so to speak, mm-hmm. to get that, that perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I really like Second uh, Baruch 54. Um, there's that, that one line, you know, for his works have not taught you, nor has the artful work of his creation, which has existed always, persuaded you. Adam is therefore not the cause, except only for himself, but each of us has become our own Adam. And it's so powerful. Yeah, and you kind of get that sense in Romans 5 as well, where, yes, Adam is the originator of our sin, and, you know, many were made sinners through his one sin. But there's, you know, in, in Romans 5 verse 12, it says, you know, we have all sinned, though. You know, individually, you know, sin passes down because we have all sinned. And there's a mystery to it. You get into verses 18, 19. There's clearly we are clearly recipients of Adam's sin. So there, there definitely is an idea of original sin that impacts today. But I don't think Paul does away with our personal responsibilities. You know, we are, as you know, you mentioned, we are our own Adam because we are the man, you know. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So a, a common objection that I hear, to this idea of Adam as an archetype, you know, as a, as a representative who's not by necessity, uh, you know, human number zero zero one off the production line. <laughs> the idea that there was no death prior to Adam. Right. Mm-hmm. On on the basis of what we're seeing there in, in Romans five. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if if, uh, if death comes through sin, which in turn can through Adam, doesn't that give us a problem of how did the world function uh, if there was no death? of any kind, of any sort, uh, in any species, anywhere in the world. I mean, what does that mean for bacteria and carnivores and fungi? And You know, uh, mm-hmm. what we know about the world today suggests that certain creatures rely on biological processes such as death in order to function. 
yeah. and sustain the world? Mm-hmm. No, that's a great question. Um, I think we need to see what Paul's actually saying here in Romans 5. Um, I think he's speaking about spiritual death, you know, because, I mean, and, and we, I think we know that because, because the, the answer that he gives with, with Christ, Christ is the light, you know, he, he brings life to people. But he's not talking about like, you know, you know, physical life today. I mean, that that's coming in the resurrection, but it's it's more there's there's a, a there's a a realized eschatology here too that that the life that he gives us is spiritual even you know right now. Yeah, you have that. I mean, uh, Jesus does bring physical life. I mean, there is a bodily physical resurrection in the future, but I don't think I don't think that Paul's suggesting that just because you receive Christ that you'll never die at this, you know, from, if I accept Christ today, I'm, I'm still going to die, you know, even though I have Jesus in my life. Um, and then I'll be resurrected later, of course. But anyway, so I think he's talking about definitely spiritual, spiritual death, right? Um, I think that's an important point. So the other thing is we need to be real careful too, as we read Genesis one and two, to not import our own scientific assumptions into those texts. I don't think that um, that those texts are talking about physics. They're they're talking theology. Um, you know, it's it's not it's not cosmology. It's theology. You know, I think that's the the best way to see it. And I think that's pretty easy to see. I mean, now if you so if you want to say that Genesis is teaching modern science, I, I mean, I don't think we want to go there. <laughs> you know. Um, but the good news is it's not teaching science, it's teaching theology and it's doing theology in a way that the ancient people could understand. And, and he's using, you know, what they thought, um, in terms of, uh, so, so they could understand conceptually, you know, the point is that God's, God's bringing order to the chaos. There's many other things we could say about Genesis one and two that would strongly suggest we should never take that literally but we t- we should take it take it as a beautiful poetic sort of story um that that speaks great theological truths yeah absolutely yeah so uh once we get that idea that we're talking about the spiritual death of humans rather than mm-hmm. you know what happens to a bug when you step on it yeah then uh, i i think that makes a bit more sense out of the whole thing doesn't it I think so. Yeah. There now I there is I I you know there is a connection theologically to physical death, right? Anything I I I'm not denying that in that sense. Um there seems to be a connection here. Um but I what I'm hesitant to do is to say that because there's a theological connection here um that that we should say that there was no death prior to the fall. I mean we have we have so we have this idea that um you know Adam and Eve were formed immortal right that until they ate ate of the tree they you know you know somehow that there was a some sort of magical component that caused them to start dying or whatever you know it's interesting because i don't think that they were made immortal in and of themselves because they needed the tree of life to continue having sustenance even before the fall right the, what made the fall so bad is that they were exiled from the tree of life so that they wouldn't live forever. So there's, there's yeah. not an, an inherent, con- there is a connection between physical death and sin, but it's not like an inherent connection, right? I mean, you know, if they didn't, 
I mean, it sounds like even before the fall, if they didn't have access to the tree of life, they, they would have died, right? Because, but this is yeah. painting a picture just to say that you need God to live, um, you know, in, even in the pre-fall state. And so the God, God's showing us, it's, again, we're just seeing the Adam and Eve story as, a, as just a story to make sense of, of these realities that we see uh, about death. And, and this is just their way of understanding that. But, but the whole point, especially for Paul, the whole point is Paul is just trying to show that Christ is the answer to the world's problems. And so he's using the Adam story to get us there. So anyway, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm kind of just blabbing at this point, but I just wanted to toss that, toss that idea in there. Yeah, that's no, good. Uh, actually, I, I came to a similar conclusion looking at Genesis six three and the idea that God sort of declares that the the days of of mankind are going to be limited to one hundred and twenty years, mm-hmm. and, and I see that as a as a mercy, as a kind of imperative to, to drive repentance, right? Because you know we're in the context of these people striving for immortality, and well, if you don't fear death then what's going to motivate you to, to live right and to change, you know? So, yeah, I, I think uh, we see these repeated efforts on, on God's part to show mercy in preventing things from getting as bad as we could possibly make them. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, and those numbers, those narratives about 120 years, I think you're right that these are this is God's way of connecting sinfulness with death. I mean, he's basically saying, Death is coming to you at 120 years, right? Um, that's, that's where I'm drawing the line. And it is an act of mercy so that we don't live forever in our sin or live long in our sin. And so that's, that's another connection between sin and physical death. But it doesn't seem to be like an inherent one in, in the sense that we think. Um, but, but you have to notice the, the narrative flow of that. You know, you, you have the stories of these people living just massively long lives. And now they're at about, about 120 at this point. The point is just to show that that if you if humans insist on keeping with sin, our lives will be withered up pretty soon. And I think that's the theological point. There is just a, it's a it's a it's a, a, a symbolic way of just saying that you know saying some sort of theological um, principle there. And because God doesn't want us to, it's not healthy for us to continue to sin on and on and on and on and on. You know something's got to give because that sin sin brings damage. And if you say no to God, you're embracing darkness. And if you know anything about Genesis 6 and First Enoch and those whole stories, like to embrace that which is not God's will is to bring self-destruction upon yourself. And God would not want us to do that, right? And so, anyway. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and, it's, and it's naturally very harmful to those around us as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's, it's all centered on self-gratification, building up the self and taking, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm taking what I want, and that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, which is yeah, destructive to the world around us and, and everything God created. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Paul goes on to talk about Jesus as the solution to the sin problem that uh, that was introduced uh, by by Adam. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, we could we could say Eve, but uh, since since we're mm-hmm. talking about Adam, so so how does that work? How does it tie into what Paul says about Adam and Christ in First Corinthians fifteen, uh, verse twenty two? For as in Adam all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for Paul, I think if we want to understand the core of his theology, I think we have to understand this idea of incorporation into Christ. So there's a theme in Paul's writings about being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You know, you have that idea. 
Um, at Romans 6, you're baptized into Christ. There's a, there's a union with Christ that's very important. And by by and, and the idea that I think he means by union with Christ, I think baptism is a very is 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 the central image there that we get. But it's all but along with that, there's this idea of pledging loyalty to Christ and committing our ways that we are aligning ourselves with this new human and this new way to live, and we commit ourselves to Him. And as a product of our union with Christ in that way, we reap the benefits. Uh, you know, everything true of Christ is true of us. We are incorporated into Israel. We are, um, we have died to ourselves. We have risen uh, to new life, and we anticipate a physical resurrection, exactly like Christ's physical resurrection. And so the, you have this idea of being in Christ, and that is just juxtaposed to our union with Adam, the first Adam. And think of think of that. You know, we are born. I mean, there's there's a fleshy, physical, descendant idea. You know, uh, which we can get into that if you want to. But there, there definitely does seem to be in Second Temple literature, such as uh, um, you know some of the passages we mentioned, Fourth Ezra, um, and I, I don't have the passages in mind, but we can read them if you want to. But um, and and I think Second Baruch too, um, where you have this idea, where as a result of being descendant from Adam, that we somehow experience that which was true of Adam. What was true of Adam is not true of us, you know. Um, and so yeah. it's not, but it's not a fatalism idea because you do have this idea of we're responsible for our own sin, you know, in that, in that vein. But if you're united with, with Adam, you're going to experience that which Adam experienced. If you're united Christ, then you're going to experience that. And what's interesting here is when you, um, as I argue in my book, uh, there's a chapter on how Paul takes Jewish stories, um, and Christologizes them. And when it comes to the Adam story in Romans 5, I think he's doing the same thing there. And it's fascinating because, as other scholars have pointed out, um, like I cite Scott McKnight in his uh, book, Adam and the Genome, he co-wrote with Dennis Venema. I think that was the other author's name. They, they point out how in Romans 5, it's interesting how Eve is never mentioned, right? She's not mentioned at all. Um, but sin has come into the world through Adam. And if you're a literalist, it's interesting because technically sin came through Eve. And even that's not quite true. Sin came through the serpent. Into If you're talking about how did sin enter the world, taking that to mean cosmos, well, Satan entered it into the garden you know, himself. But that's not mentioned at all. Paul seems to focus exclusively on Adam. And uh, I encourage everybody to read uh, you know, Scott McKnight and Venom's book on that. Um, they have a section on that. And then I also talk about it in my book. And if you want, you know, it, yeah, I think those are uh, good resources for further study on this. But what I did was, it's funny because I compared that to Sirach, the, the wisdom of Ben Syrah. Um, uh, you know, people are probably familiar with this, uh, this book, um, Sirach. And there are a couple passages there in, in that passage where it talks about how because of Eve, we all die. You know, you, 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 have, you, you have this focus on Eve's culpability in this whole situation. I found that, you know, interesting um, because um, you, you have, in that passage at least, no mention of Adam, but just a mention of Eve. But when you look at Paul, you have no mention of Eve, but Adam. And so what, I, what I've done, and again, I'm not the first to observe that, but, but um, you know, the you know, like I, like I said, I can't emphasize enough. Go read Scott McKnight's book about the eveless retelling of the Adam story. So what I did was I tried to show that what Paul is doing is he's telling a certain version of the Adam story rather creatively. 
you know, he's not giving us a literal version. He's not saying sin came into the world through the serpent or sin came into the world through the through Eve. He's saying sin came in the world through Adam. And and I think the reason he's telling the story in that way is because he needs what Scott McKnight would call a genealogical Adam to serve as sort of a paterfamilias, uh, like a head father figure for humanity. Okay. And, and by the way, this does not ne- necessitate, uh, you know, a historical Adam, I don't think. And again, read Scott McKnight's book. He gives a good case for this. And, but it does necessitate a genealogical, theological, I would say, Adam. And, and so it, Paul needs that Adam to, com, to parallel with his prior beliefs of Jesus and the Messiah that he brings to the Adam story. He brings his assumptions of Jesus as Messiah to the Adam story. It, he, he knows that it's through Jesus that life uh, comes. And so he needs a figure uh, in the Jewish story through whom death comes. And it needs to be sort of this paterfamilias figure. So I think that's why you get the story you do with Adam. Um, you know, there's, and again, lots of debates. Is this a, does Paul believe in a historical Adam or, you know, yada, yada, yada. It seems that he mostly believes in a genealogical Adam, as McKnight says, you know, and, um, and, and it, his retelling, his telling of the Adam story is a retelling, a Christological retelling of the Adam story. You know, um, and, and you could read Romans 5, any parallelism through Adam, we get condemnation through Jesus, we get justification, we get death through Adam, life through Jesus. He's paralleling this out because he's bringing to the Genesis story his prior beliefs in Jesus, the Messiah, and he's reading it in light of that. If he was trying to give us a literal interpretation, he would have arguably done something slightly different. And by the way, Paul knows good and well that the Genesis story, <laughs> because elsewhere he knows that. He knows Eve's role in, in that account. You read the passage in Timothy. He knows um, that Eve is responsible too, but he never mentions her in Romans 5. Why? Because he needs to tell the story slightly differently there. You know, Yeah, that, that opens a whole lot of can of worms too, but, um, but I think that's essentially what's going on there. And, and I, my apologies, but I don't know if I... Did I answer your question? I, oh, yeah. Yeah, Okay. 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 Ah. Yeah. Ah, fantastic. Uh, yeah, so most people I've heard talking about this view of Adam as the archetype for humanity. They sort of get as far as Genesis 3, and once the humans are exiled from the Garden of Eden, we don't hear any more about the archetypal man. Uh, but, but the man has a life beyond the end of Genesis 3. He's presented as the father of Cain in Genesis 4. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting, because when we get to the end of Genesis 4 and the birth of Seth, we don't get the man, we get Adam. Uh, and, and I spoke on, on the podcast as we went through Genesis 4, uh, about how this genealogy of Cain is supposed to show us the fruits of our own labors, because just as the man is all of us, we can see in Cain the fruits of our endeavors apart from the Lord. The historical, or uh, shall we say genealogical, Adam appears as the father of Seth at the end of chapter 4, and then, of course, we have the full story of the genealogy through to Noah in chapter 5. But that doesn't mean that the man has faded out of the picture, because when we get to chapter 6, he appears again. As we start reading Genesis 6, we discover that it's the daughters of the man who procreate with the sons of God and produce the giants. You know, I never hear anybody talk about this. That's a shocking realization for most people because what it means is not that there were some guys who let their daughters do this. It was not like there was one or two who crossed that boundary line and allowed that perversion of the created order to occur. This is the man. This is the collective humanity. This is everyone. 
Mm. And we see that as the reading progresses into verse 5, and we're told that the wickedness of the man was great in the land. So much so that when God decides that the land needs to be purged of this evil, he finds only one family to preserve. Just one. The archetypal narrative finishes with the onset of the flood epic, but technically it's not the end of the story because after the flood occurs, we have God's vow to never again destroy the land with the flood. And, and why? Because every inclination of the heart of the man is evil from his youth. So what I'm getting at here is that the work of Christ goes beyond what happened in Genesis 3 when Paul says, as in Adam all die. I think we could reasonably see that as a reference to humanity, including his pursuit of immortality, technology, and power over his fellow man. That's Genesis 3, 4, and 6. But getting back to the idea of a functional ontology of man, when we look at what the man is supposed to do, and we contrast that against what he was doing in Genesis 3, 4, and 6, we see in Christ the reversal and the restoration. Jesus shows us what it meant to be human. And in doing so, he's provided a template for our repentance. He gave us the ultimate example of putting others before ourselves. Humans became giants in their pursuit of self-determination and self-gratification. That was the ultimate destruction of what made them fundamentally human as created by God. Our life isn't meant to be lived for ourselves. As we lose that functionality, we fail to represent God the way he intended. Paul's presenting Christ as the new, perfect Adam. And if we take Adam as the archetype for humanity, then what we see in Christ as the ultimate vision of what it means to be human. I think that ties us nicely back to what we were saying about Adam in the first place, who he is, what he does, who he represents. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, there's a lot of thoughts there. I think, yeah, if I, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that there's a, uh, and, and by the way, I love what you said about Genesis 6 here. You're pointing out the Adam story, how it appears there, but oftentimes it doesn't appear in our translation. So I'm just looking at the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, 6.4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans. Uh, you know, that idea, the humans there, we, my translation has humans, which is, an, that's a fine translation, but but we gotta, we, we need to know that that's ha-adam, the, the man, you know, the yeah. human. The human. Yeah. Um, and so, and so if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, the, the idea here is that um, that they are imitating the, these these daughters of humans represent the uh, the the ways of the fallen man essentially like they become that is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think what we see is the the product of this desire to achieve this godlike status, you know. Okay. okay. Um, it, making these connections with the sons of God. Uh, trying to reach for, for something beyond our, our station, you know, trying to achieve that glorification uh, that that God actually has for us if we're faithful, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by our own means. Yeah. yeah. And doing so at the expense of others and at the expense of the earth itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely this train of thought, I think, through Scripture and through the narrative that you've just outlined that, you have you have sort of these two narratives that are being played out. You know, you have what God's will is for humans, right? And what he wants from them and how he wants them to behave and how to act. And then you have this other idea of the people, certain people, um, essentially trying out their own pursuits. You have, you know, arguably here in Deuteronomy 6, you have this idea of 
humans wanting to uh, cohabitate with the divine beings uh, in, you know, with what motivation, you know, what, well, I think reading Enoch here can help us. Uh, the first part of Enoch where, you know, perhaps there's a lust for power. And, you know, if you read Enoch, you, you find out real quickly that these sons of God, these divine beings are teaching humans how to kill each other better, right? Um, the weapons of war and metallurgy. And the, the point here is giving them, imparting to them knowledge on how to be destructive and have power over other people. And then, you know, if that's what's happening here in Genesis 6, then as you move forward to the Genesis 11 story of the Tower of Babel, you know, you have to ask yourself what exactly is going on there. Well, it seems to be this, you know, pursuit of reputation they want to make a name for themselves is the, what the text says. And then um, you have, that, you have that, that whole narrative of humans doing what humans do apart from God. But, but then that immediately feeds into the Genesis 12 story of God calling out Abraham and his family. And, and God actually says to Abraham, you know, I'll make a name for you. I'll make your name great. And that's the alternative. Well, you could call it, you know, I've never thought of it like this, but you could call it a competing eschatology. You know, that you have yeah. uh, two eschatologies at war with one another and which one will win out. That That's, you know, that Genesis, I, I talk about this a lot. Uh, Tom Wright talks about this, you know, this idea of a of God chooses Abraham to be the rescue plan for the world. And uh, you might call it, you know, I, I, I use this term a lot. The Genesis 11, 12 narrative is what drives the entire story of scripture. You know? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that's really where my whole podcast series is driving, you know, we're basically going through the primeval history uh, with the aim of showing how this worldview just helps you to unpack so much of the rest of scripture, makes sense of a lot of the weird stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just gives us that that well-rounded biblical understanding. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, yeah, you hit it right on the head. I mean, when you, you, you see that, that that phrase in Genesis 11, you know, let's make a name for ourselves. Uh, to me, that harkens right back to Genesis 6 and the men of renown. Oh, and yeah. Just that, yeah. That's a good, that connection. good connection. Like, yeah, we, yeah, you know, we want to be like those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and we want it, and, and I like your point earlier, where you said, you know, God will give us glorification, but we're going to have to do it God's way. Right. And, and, yeah. you know, there's this idea even in Adam and this draws the connection back to the man, Adam story is, um, you know, there's this lust for knowledge of being like God, knowledge of good and evil, that God's keeping us back from something beautiful and good. And it's the serpent takes advantage and puts those, those thoughts in, in, in the minds of Adam and Eve. And so they go after it. And what's interesting is, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not a Irenaeus scholar, but I think it is Irenaeus. Are you early patristic scholars? You can correct me if I'm wrong here. But um, I think it was Irenaeus who, who made the comment that, you know, God would have given them that eventually, but they needed to first follow, you know, show that they loved God with all their heart and with all their soul before he imparted to them the gift of knowledge, right? And of course, the scandal, as we all know, is that they were already made in the image of God. That's what Satan deceived them on. Like they were already in God's beautiful image, but they they chose to essentially take the gifts of God without the presence of God, right? They wanted the knowledge. And that just ends in disaster. If, if you had stayed with God, you would have had so much more than what you're trying to 
attain on your own efforts. Um, That's right. Yeah, they, they yeah. gave up what they couldn't lose to try and gain what they couldn't keep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they did. And say, yeah, say that phrase again. How would you put that? They yeah. gave up what they couldn't lose to try and gain what they couldn't keep. Oh yeah, that, that, I like that tension there. That's 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 a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think we'll wrap it up there because we're getting pretty close to time. I try and keep the episodes to about an hour, and uh, I think sure. we're going to do pretty well there. Um, but before we go, let's just talk a little more about your new book because I want to get the wheels turning for you, uh, and uh, and make sure you, you tell everybody where they can find you, find the book. Um, get themselves a copy when it comes out. I know it's a little while away yet, but uh, yeah, please tell us a little more about your book. Yeah, thanks. Um, so it is available for pre-order. You can order it uh, probably just anywhere, but Amazon does a good pre-order. And actually, I need to double check it. It's been a few weeks since I've checked it, but um, if you order it directly from the publisher, you get a pretty good discount uh, on the price. Um, it's It's locked in. So if you go to Lexum Press and uh, find the book or Google my name in Lexum Press, L-E-X-H-A-M. And, and your listeners are probably very familiar with Lexum because Heiser published a lot with Lexum. Yeah, if you go there, if you order it from them, pre-order it, you can get it. I think it's a, I think it's 32% off at this point. I, I don't know. I can't remember, but it's a pretty good deal. And um, so you can lock it in there like that, or you can order it from Amazon, whatever. But um yeah, so they can find it. They can find the book there, and and um, I would I would love to hear feedback once it's released, and um, I would love to hear what folks think about it. And I wrote it. You know, I, I had two goals in mind. One is I wanted it to be informed by you know solid uh, scholarship, right? I wanted I wanted to take what scholars were saying and and pass it on to people. So you'll find in the book lots of footnotes. You'll find references and things like that. But it's not going to be so much that it's daunting. Like you don't need to wade into the footnotes if you don't want to. It reads just fine just reading the text. Because I wanted it to be, secondly, a book that you could hand to anybody in church and say, hey, here's a book, you know, uh, that you might find helpful. It might raise some good questions for you. Um, and, you know, you know, just pass it on to anybody you want to. But there's enough there for those who want to do uh, further scholarship. But there's also enough uh, there that you could just it could be a coffee table book, you know. Um, and I, I don't know. Hope, you know, you know, hopefully I've done a good job in threading that needle very carefully. Um, so it's not daunting, but it's also substantial. And I'm, I'm happy to come back on the show if you want to do do a podcast just on the book or whatever or anybody out there. I'm, I'm happy to, to chat further about it. I'm really excited about the book. It's It's been a, a long uh, work in the process and I'm super excited to see this thing come out. All right. Well, uh, I just want to say again, thank you so much for putting aside the time to do this. Uh, it's been a great discussion and a real pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I would love to do it again. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I, you're a great host, and um, thanks. You uh, you make it feel real comfortable, and um, it's just very conversational, but deep at the same time. So, yeah, it, it, the pleasure was mine to be here. So I'm, I'm happy to come back again. And uh, oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, so that's all from us. Uh, I will catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Stick around. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant 
questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Forsaken, greatforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.